This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook, Volume 2, and today is January 3rd, 2024. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is Renee DePew, and I was at Hofstra Radio between 1989 and 1992. Thank you so much for coming back. It's it's always a, a real joy to talk to you, and I'm excited to hear uh, the rest of your stories about your time at WRI2. Um, well, thank if- you again for having me back. I had a really good time with you the first time, and I'm, I'm ready to have some more laughs this time around. All right. I'm excited. This is fun. Okay. Um, let's do a little reminder. What positions or titles did you have at the station? Okay. I... Um... I was airwave producer, um, then I was music director for the 1990 to 1991 school year. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I became program director, held that position until, say, the winter of 91 to 92, and Mm -hmm. then for my last semester at Hofstra, the spring semester of 92, I was chief announcer. Okay. All right. Um, Well, I I am excited to talk to you about your time as airwave producer. And I feel like I could ask you questions and talk about music and bands for like an hour, just about that. Because it's such a a fertile time and, and then following in your footsteps, uh, you know, in the years after working on airwave and, and in the music department, I feel like we could, we could, go into the nitty gritty details, but, um, was that a position that you were seeking out at the time or was it something that someone asked you to do? How did that come about? That's a good question. I actually, I mean, keep me honest. I was airwave producer, right? Mm-hmm. I kind of remember that I was, but then I was thinking, well, when, because, oh, I know. Okay. When I started at the station, which was in the fall of 89. I think it was Eliana Baslaw who was, I think she was music director and airwave producer, if that mm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I was co-producer with Robin Biner after her. Okay. I don't know why all of a sudden I have doubts as to my resume, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure I at least co-produced Airwave with Robin, maybe did it for a while on my own. Okay. But that was something that, I mean, if you did Airwave, you wanted that job. You know, mm -hmm. you wanted to be able to have a greater say in picking what made it to air. Even though, you know, you were pretty much the producer of your own shift. Right. You know, we got to pick our own music. All we had, the only program um, clock that we had to follow, which flew in the face of everything I learned about programming afterwards, was our four new songs kicked off the hour. You know, they were all in that first quarter hour. And then for the rest of the hour, you could play whatever you want. Um, Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I don't, I don't think I knew about, about that rule. Was that something that preceded you and, and you kept up with or, or was that yes. uh, a conscious decision? Yeah, I inherited that. 
And we had, I don't know if you remember, we had A, B, and C categories for oh, the music. Oh, yeah. And the clock was from starting from the top of the hour, A, B, A, C was your first quarter hour. <laughs> wow. So it was all the new untested stuff. Not that anything was tested at college radio, but it right. was all the, the least familiar music. Um, and then you could play whatever you wanted for the rest of the hour and we'd have to pick from the front of the of the of the cards for each um category Mm -hmm. but nobody paid any attention to that because if there was a song that was hot we all wanted to play that song so for example for a while i was doing monday night 1 a.m to 3 a.m and Sharon was ahead of me. She did 11 to 1. And it didn't matter to me if she played Head Like a Hole from Nine Inch Nails because I wanted to play it too. So even though I wasn't supposed to play it again that night, there I was playing it two hours later. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we, we kind of went fast and loose. And I don't think anybody cared as much as long as we were using that first quarter hour to expose new music. It was kind of okay. If somebody played something that had been played earlier in the evening, like as producer, I didn't love it, but I understood it and kind of accepted it. Right. Because you can't police every shift and make sure. And then what are you going to do and tell them, well, you can't do a show next week. Well, no, you need somebody on the air. So there's Mm -hmm. limited uh, tools in the arsenal there, but, um, how interesting. And then, like you said, it kind of flies in, in the face of like, you know, top of the hour when people are tuning in, they probably want something familiar. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Or at least to spread the less familiar music throughout the hour and, you know, and kind of cushion it with, you know, familiar gold records or whatever. Mm-hmm. But maybe I don't know how much that applies to, to, more contemporary formats, you know, after college, I went to what was then called the AAA format. I have no idea what it's called now. Yeah, It was like an adult alternative kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then went to and help grow what became the smooth jazz format. So those were both gold-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, top 40, you know, at the time or a new rock station, might have might have done it more like airwave was set up but you know the the lessons that i learned after college were that what i did in college kind of made no sense in commercial radio right right <laughs> just one of the many lessons i learned <laughs> well yeah i mean there's 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 things that work uh at wri2 or in college format but they aren't necessarily applicable otherwise or perhaps you know weren't allowed for various reasons and i I think that's what college radio is largely for Mm -hmm. you know to 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 you know express yourself creatively and kind of soar with you know what you have to work with so so that maintains and builds up your interest in the format and it inspires you to go on and make a career of this. 
Yeah, yeah, it's about pushing the boundaries of of not just the whatever the genre is, but but your own and trying different music. And I and I always like that idea of whether it's that that format at the beginning, or I think for a time we had that you had to play so many currents per hour or, or new releases. You'd have to play mm-hmm. four or five or six, you know, and you could do it in whatever order. But we were always pushing the new music, and it wouldn't necessarily be like, well, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to play it. Uh, and then you might like it. And I think that's that was an important part of, of what Airwave was about. It's like, well, I'm going to try this out and it might be terrible and it might be really fantastic. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, who else was on the air? Do you remember who else was doing Airwave shows while you were a producer? Sharon was there. Mm-hmm. Clapow was there. Yeah. Um. Robin Biner, um, Clive Young on loan from Nonsense and Hofstra Inc., our short lived and much missed graphic novel. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't remember if you knew that Hofstra had a uh, had a graphic novel. Um yeah, I, I I have a vague recollection of that. A few people have mentioned that. Oh yeah, I remember, but yeah. I can't. I can. I'm having trouble picturing it. But yeah, I do remember it was that fantastic, being a thing. But yeah. yeah, he was more of a print guy who loved music, and he did an airwave shift. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, who else did? While I, think, I was producer. I think when I came on, yeah, this probably would have been a little bit later. Like Dave Krug was a year ahead of me in high school. And I remember hanging out with him on a show. But I think that was oh, yeah. maybe when you were program director. And that yeah. was another thing where it's like, I don't know what he's playing, but I like it. Like, I was, oh, just, yeah. I was just absorbing things and going, okay, what's this? What's that? That was that was really fun. Oh, yeah. The folks that were on after, um, you know, especially after I had produced and became um the overall program director. I mean, there, there were some really creative and, uh, and innovative music mm-hmm. heads who, uh, who did airwave shifts and yeah, you got exposed to a lot of great music that way. I want to jump back. I think you said something about cards. Were there index cards with the new releases or is that, or is, am I inventing that? No, it was, I believe it was index cards on the records themselves. Oh, okay, right. And right. we had a little section of the of those currents. And when you pulled out the um, the album, you had to put your date and initials yeah. on the card. Right. I think that's how it was. Yep. That's that's I. Yeah. That that makes that makes total sense. Um, I think we got a little lax on that for a while, but it was interesting. Oh, yeah. if, you, if you pulled something out and you're like, well, what do I play? And like, well, this guy played this song seven times. I'm going to play that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Interesting. Um, oh, very cool. So, so you do some time as airwave producer and you decide to go for music director. Uh, yes. Again, was that a conscious choice? Was that something that you wanted to do or were you asked to do that? That was a conscious choice. Hmm. I definitely wanted that. And um, I was very, very happy to get it. Mm. Um, that's, that's always been my favorite part of radio. Um, I enjoyed being on the air very much. Um, but I, as you know, post-college, my career was in music programming. And that's because I really, I really just enjoyed it so much. I liked being 
I guess the gatekeeper. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I get that. Who had everything thrown at me and was able to go through it all and kind of think of it in terms of, well, what's going to work for, you know, for this show, for that show, you know, will it fit the sound? Is it a direction we should, you know, we should try exploring. Um, and then, you know, within a show, how to make it all flow. Um, and to the extent that I was involved with that as music director, I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. So at that point you're getting in, I want to guess like 90%, 95% vinyl, where I think CDs were just starting to come into the station about that time. Does that seem right? Yes. Um, we got our first CD player, I think my junior year of college. So mm. 90, maybe fall of 90, mm. winter of 91, something like that. Um, but yeah, and even right up until I graduated, it was, it was mostly vinyl. I'll say maybe 85% still mm. by the time I left. Yeah. And, and the programs that you would have been getting new music on were probably mostly the, the jazz music and the airwave stuff. Was, was there still a new age show on at the time? Were you still getting stuff for that? Were you getting new rock music? For the, for the first year or so that I was there, maybe year and a half, we still had new age images. Mm -hmm. Then when we transitioned to um, what we called rock solid 88, seven, yep. It was a classic rock show and we had no new music for it. Um, we scoured the vinyl that was all over the music office on those dusty shelves. <laughs> yep. And <laughs> so it wasn't even by and large hit music from the classic rock genre. It was, you know, the Fleetwood Mac albums you maybe never heard of the ones right. that preceded Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham joining the group. Yep. Um, it was, you know, like, um, Mott the Hoople, but not necessarily going up the country, which is still the only song by them. I know, you know, right. it was, <laughs> it was a lot of obscure stuff, but it was enough to, it was enough to evoke a feeling and it was enough to create at least the base of a sound for the, for this um, right. show that you could build upon. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being very tightly formatted and I don't remember, and maybe this is just memory. I don't remember there being an emphasis on new music. In fact, almost, you know, it was pretty rare that something new would get on. And I don't know if that's just because of the availability or that was the way the format was constructed. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. And it sounds, if I remember correctly, if that was more by design. Yeah. Um, another show, by the way, that we got a lot of product in for and calls about from record people were um, the Saturday night dance shows, um, yeah. the perfect beat with Joanne C yep. and P five with Jeff Foss, um, which was funny because I would leave both of them, you know, any CDs that I had and with their connections, if it was any good, they had had it two months earlier, right. you know, so they didn't need us for, for that. You know, they were, they had their own record contacts. They had their own 
stuff that they were bringing in and they crafted um, their, you know, the sounds of their own shows and brilliantly. Um, but still got a lot of CDs in and vinyl on it and, uh, and would take music calls for it. And I'd say, pass it along to Jeff, pass it along to Joanne, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, occasionally I'd get feedback from them. But most times it was, you know, it was a polite, hey, thanks, I got it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they did. And they did. They didn't need us for that. Right, right. Um, you mentioned a couple things about, you know, the, the, the actual physical part of the music director job. And, and one of them is, is the music office, which I always love asking about. And then the, and then the phone calls, because again, today things are done so differently, but back then it was a phone and paper messages. I don't think at the time there was voicemail. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, no. but I seem to remember everything was written down on paper and everything coming in on vinyl and that little closet of a room with, you know, a million records in it. What do you remember about the music office? It was the best cave I've ever spent any time in. Amen. Um, and it really was a cave. Yeah. Um, it should have been soundproof too. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't, it should have been, I know Sue would have appreciated it and the, yep office next door sometimes if if it were soundproof but um it was just it it really it it was like it was like the music gods just vomited up all their goodness (laughs) all over the walls um like i said vinyl from a thousand years ago, like before vinyl should have even been invented records you never heard of. And then plenty that you did, you know, and that tiny little metal desk. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we kept all our notes from record companies and everything in our logs in not a trapper keeper, but one of those kind of, you know, flexible plastic binders. Yep. Um, we had our stereo that, you know, at least in theory, was supposed to be used by the music director and producers to preview new music, but everybody just came in and, and used it and put on what they wanted, um, right. which was fine. And um, it was just just a fun, fairly organized disaster of an office but it really was kind of the place that everybody gravitated towards that had any interest in music. Um, the main office was great for, you know, for the sniping and the fun and, you know, and news and everything like that. The sports guys had their corner, but if you were, you know, if you were looking to put on, um, like I said, Head Like a Hole was very big when I was there. Smells Like Teen Spirit came out when I was yep. there. And people yep. would just go down to Master Control, grab the album, bring it down the hall, and put it on in the music office just to listen to it between classes. Um, and that's really kind of, that's what it was. It was it was our, our hangout to really get that full kind of college music experience. Hmm. Yeah, I have very distinct memories after uh, you guys gave me the opportunity to be airwave producer, and especially that that summer between, I guess, my freshman and sophomore years that I would come down and I was doing my best to learn as much about the airwave music as 
as possible. And I'd pull stuff from the studio and the new releases would come in and I, I always have a stack. And I seem to remember that Tuesdays were usually the day that new music came in. And then we had a whole process for uh, logging that. And this may not be interesting to everybody, but to me, this is so exciting to even think about. It's like, there's a whole process of when the new music came in and how it was logged. And you mentioned the binder, like, what do you, do you, do you remember being excited about that stuff or is it just me? No, I was a nerd for that too. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I, and, and just as much for the logging as for the listening. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, I was, I was the little girl who played library with my cousin mm-hmm. instead of going out and, you know, rolling in dirt. You know what I mean? We'd play right. library, we'd play office. So I was totally into logging things and organizing them and yeah creating index cards. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that, that, you know, you could do some of that, that busy work and put on a new record and listen for curses and listen for lyrics and, yes. and you could sort of multitask, but you know, if something was good and again, poor Sue next door, if something was good and you cranked it up, you could have that full sensory experience in there, even though the, the speakers weren't necessarily the best, it was still, oh, yeah you know, in that, in that little, and one, one more piece of minutia, and I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it alone, but I, I just, I, I love talking about this. Was there any kind of system with those records that are on those shelves? I mean, those floor to ceiling shelves with records. Was there any system at all? I don't remember there being one. I think eventually once they started combing through them for, um, for the rock show. Yeah. I think we did try to eventually group them by genre. Oh, Okay. I, yeah, I'm going to go with that. And that was pretty loose as it was. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Um, well, thank you for indulging me. That was, that, that's, that's a lot of fun. I could, uh, I could, I could talk about more. that stuff all day too, but I, I, I'm I know. Sure yeah. Not every, not everybody's into it. Out by now, probably all sports guys cursing <laughs> us for being music nerds. Well, you know, they've, they've got their own <laughs> minutia and their own nerdery. So let oh, them have yeah. it. And we'll have we'll have hours. So so you do a year as music director, and then you become program director. Let's talk about that a little bit. What was uh, what was on your mind becoming program director? It seemed like the the logical next step, mm-hmm. and i I wanted to assume a little more responsibility and have and gain some experience in shows outside of my musical comfort zone mm-hmm. of airwave and had, you know, had started being exposed to more of those genres as a music director, but there was still all of the international programming. Mm-hmm. There was still the news programming, our, um, public service shows, the talk shows and everything. And I kind of wanted to get a sense of how to make them all fit together and to help have a say in how to make it all fit together Hmm. in a way that allowed for maximum creativity and still had an overarching theme to it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That was my goal. That's that's kind of what got me, what made me interested in doing it. Like, how do you help craft the overall 
sound and presentation of the station. Mm-hmm. So is that more like of a, a, a continuity idea or i guess today they'd call it branding or or you know however what kind of links you're using or, or station ids what what did that mean to you i mean i guess it kind of is i think it was more i mean certainly those were those ideas were kind of germinating mm-hmm. in my head because i guess that i was kind of learning about that not only from being involved in RHU, but just from, you know, my entire life of listening to radio, you know, what, what held everything together? Um, What helped give the station an identity? What brought you here instead of anywhere else on the dial? Mm -hmm. Um, And in the case of a college station where you had this block programming and some of it was music and some of it was talk and some of it was a blend of the two, how can you make that all make sense together? Right. Um, and I never, I never really was able to, and I don't think at the time the job was designed necessarily to kind of achieve that goal, Mm -hmm. but it was certainly something that was motivating me to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, in in talking with with different program directors over time, I think there is that idea of um, we want to make the sound of the station as identifiable as possible without taking away the individuality. And I think it's a it's a hard thing to do. And you know, today I guess again they call it imaging or branding, and there's certain yeah. sounds that that can be continuous. But we had you know station IDs. We did the news at the top of every hour. We had certain public service announcements and promos that we would run. Uh, sort of as an idea. So yeah, I think, I think it's a hard thing to achieve, but it is, it is, like you say, it's pushing yourself as a program director and understanding. Uh, I think it's a, it's a valuable lesson, even if you can't quite get exactly what you want or what you think you want. Yes. And it, it, it can, it can serve you later on. I think it's not necessarily the point of being program director, but it's something that can be useful, you know, whatever you can go into. Um. So you were working as program director that year. You were working with Karen Jean as the station manager and Shauna Wharton as program operations director, I think. And then did she become the program director the second half of that year? Yes, I believe she, ooh, I believe she did. Either she became program director or she, she may have become station manager and Karen took the program director job. Oh, wow. I don't know I, why I think they may have switched it up. I, you know, um, when, when we had our first conversation about this, it blew my mind that I did not remember that because I was so deep. I had drunk the WRI2 Kool-Aid. I was there all <laughs> the time. It was so big a part of my life. And then you said that in our conversation and I went, why don't I remember that? And I guess the only reason I think I remember Shauna being PD and Karen as station manager is the desks. I remember right. Shauna and sitting closer to the door, which was the program director desk. Then there's your answer. Okay. Then that's exactly your answer. Yeah. And it really is that simple. Um, yeah. And might I add, and we talked about it last time, we were the first all female executive board in the yeah. station's history. It's amazing. 
something something to be proud of and and you know so much of what the station has become and and the role of women in radio and and at the station has expanded so greatly um you know but i i talked to you about this and i talked to denise hanak and the the possibilities for women at the time in radio were somewhat limited or believed to be limited that like Denise wanted to go into to do sports at the station. And she walked in and went, Nope, that's a, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And so the fact that the three of you were the executive board was, was really pioneering and sort of setting the stage for what, what came later. And I don't know if you had a sense of that at the time that it was important or it was just like, Oh, that's a thing that we did. No, we thought it was cool. We thought yeah. it was cool. We didn't, um, you know, we didn't try trading on it or anything like that, but yeah. Um, we were aware of it. We were, we were proud of it. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so we, we talked about all these jobs and all these things, but there's, there's so much more. And I guess I want to start broadly. Is there a story that when you think of Hofstra radio, is there a story that you always tell? You know that there is. I know. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) And now finally the telling of the story that I suppose is most often, associated with me and my time at this station. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the summer of 1991. Um, there was a show at Jones Beach, mm-hmm. a very big show um, featuring a prominent airwave artist. Mm, um, interesting. Who has proved in later decades to be quite litigious some might say petty. Yeah. Um, so we're not going to use this artist's name just in case, just in you know, case. that maybe the seven or eight people who hear this podcast. Hey, um, come on. We get, we get, it. we get a few dozen people listening <laughs> to this. Come on. And you know, like truth, they don't know the story told, anyway. Well, you know, um, you're just, just as an aside, just, just to <laughs> blow that up a little bit. I looked at the statistics from all the episodes from 2023, and you're in the top 10, sister. So, you know, Stop don't call it. yourself short. No, absolutely. That's hilarious. Thank absolutely. you, guys. No, it's not hilarious. It's 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 a testament. People wanted to hear your story. But anyway, do go on. Yes. Okay. So, so, so mystery, mystery a, artist, yes. Yes. Um, you know what? For the purposes of this conversation, let's call him something generic like Mr. Smith. Okay. Interesting. Um, we'll call him Mr. Smith. And Mr. he was Smith. play he was scheduled to play at Jones Beach. Um, and I believe the entire concert series for the summer was at the time um sponsored and presented by WBAB. That sounds right. And yeah. they usually did usually one of their talent was out there as the host. I don't remember whose idea it was, but for some reason it was offered to RHU instead to be the, the onstage host and bring out Mr. Smith. Mm -hmm. Um, A a big deal for the station. That's pretty pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, But you know, a little bit terrifying and I was program director. It was the summertime, and that was one of the rare times I got to um, got to flex a little bit and say, "Oh, I'll go." Um, now you can help me out by telling me 
who I took with me. I think I took Nick with me. That sounds right. That sounds right. I was, I was thinking that, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. That sounds right. I think Nick and I went and Nick to Carmine for anyone who's not sure. And and we could tell stories about Nick for days. I'm sure. But anyway, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Nick's great. But um, yeah. And what Nick didn't know was that Nick was going to bring on Mr. Smith um, because I was terrified. But it didn't matter because when we got to the beach, we were told very politely but firmly that no, WRHU wasn't coming on stage and uh, BAB had it covered. And, you know, I guess you could stay for the show if you want, but otherwise your services aren't needed here. Hmm. And I internally breathed a little sigh of relief. Um, Somehow Nick and I decided we weren't really interested in staying for the show. And we, oh, right, because I was on the air that night. Oh. That's right. I was doing a shift that night. So um, so we left. Started the shift at 11 o'clock. And the phones are going crazy. And it's listeners talking about Mr. Smith's show mm-hmm. at Jones Beach. And the the, the listeners that are calling in are, are telling us about how the show kind of ended early. Mr. Smith took off, you know, kind of way before anybody expected the set to end. The crowd got a little rowdy about it. And it was a minor thing. Mm. Now, we were long gone. I had no idea if any of that was true. Um. More calls started coming in. Hey, I was at the show and, you know, none of this is on air, by the way. We're doing right. our show on air and taking all these calls off the air. And, oh, I was at, I was out at Jones Beach. Oh, did it really, you know, what went on? We we're getting these calls about, you know, him leaving early. There was like a rush for the stage and everything. And more than a few calls kept coming in where, oh, that always happens at his shows. Mm-hmm. That's just mm-hmm. something he does. So your naive, idealistic 21-year-old newbie program director has a fit of righteous anger right. and says, how can this artist claim to love their fans so much and, and put them in mortal danger? <laughs> and the next day, I took all of this artist's music out of master control and typed up a memo to put on the door saying such and such an artist off airwave indefinitely for this reason, because I felt we couldn't support an artist that was so incredibly uninterested in the safety of their fans. Mm Mm-hmm. I say that with all the contempt in the world for myself now, because man, you know, where do I begin? I'm banning an artist. That's like one of the core artists for, for our, our genre. I'm, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm taking a stand on behalf of, you know, the poor put upon fans who paid good money and went there and nearly got trampled to death allegedly because none of this was ever proven. Um, well, I'm, I, you know, I think uh, said unnamed artist has <laughs> garnished and burnished a, a a reputation for such antics and okay. for cancellations, and I think that's been proven over 
time to be a thing. Yes. And now we sort of shrug and go, well, is this going to happen? It probably will. And you factor that in. But at the time, um, it was all new to me. It was all new I to was most horrified. of us. Well, you said you said before it was a minor thing. It was not a minor thing. People were talking about it all over the place. And it wasn't just at our radio station. It was all over. People were really upset about it. People were mad. Again, at this, you know, unnamed alleged artist that Mr. Smith, or, yes. Or Mr. Smith. But I, I remember there there being righteous indignation, you know, from a lot of people, not just people at the station and, and, you know, friends of mine from high school and other people that listen to the music, we were all pretty ticked off because the Jones beach summer schedule was like the thing that we look forward to. And I remember where they would publish the ad in newsday and every scour and be like, Oh, I can go to the show. I want to go to the show. And it was a thing. It was a thing to look forward to. And that this show was shortened and then, you know, everything that went with it. I, I, I remember it being a, a pretty big deal and uh, people being pretty outraged about it. So I think you well, were on the spot. I'm kind of glad to hear that because of course, you know, thinking about it in the rear view, you know, I, I, I kind of judge myself harshly for it, but um, I really did. I really did feel like at the time, like, you know, we're college kids. Like how can yeah. we, you know, and, and especially that artist tends to attract a very adoring mm-hmm. fan base. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, nobody had a lot of money. You're spending nope. your hard-earned money or however you got it, um, <laughs> which you didn't have much of, to go to a show at the beach. And then it gets cut short. And, you know, allegedly there's like, a near stampede that follows. I mean, how dare you? Yeah. And so darn it, I was going to take a stand. And as, as representative of this radio station, I wasn't going to support an artist who was so uncaring um, of their fans. And that lasted, I don't know, a week, I guess. I I think I, I seem to remember it being a little bit longer, but, um, I, you know, I think point proven. And, and even so, I think there was, there's something of a lingering hangover where, you know, it was allowed, but you know, the, the frequency that artist music would have been played at would have been high. And I think for yes. a time it was, it was low, but then again, there was about to be a, well, not quite yet, but a little bit of a sea change in, in the programming of airwave. I think things were going to shift a little bit in the coming days. So that's perhaps. true. But, that's true. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely moving away from that artist's sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they were irrelevant by any means, but I think no, it was, it was still definitely, not. Yeah, still I think it was, not. I think no it was disrespect to you know the effect this artist's songs have had on on the culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I it, it left a taste in my mouth that lingers to this day. I think um, there was a, there was an ethos, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but like like it's not quite a punk rock thing, but I feel like there was a there was a mindset to college indie rock at the time, the sort of not anti commercial, but look, we're in this for the art. We're not sellouts. We're not yeah. jerks. We're not rock stars. We're doing this because we love it and we love our audience. And whether it was the artists themselves or the DJs or the audience, we all kind of felt 
in a similar boat. Like we're kind of the oddballs and weirdos and we like it that way. And we're going to support yeah. each other. And this flies in the face of that. And, that, that, and so that pretty I, much sums it up. Yeah. I just, I, I felt, I felt like it was, it was the right thing, whether it was a week or a month or whatever it was, you, you know, I, I think a commercial Thank radio you. station would have made a big deal and been like, we're not playing this jerk yes. anymore. Tune yes. in. And it would have been a thing. Whereas that's not what we were doing. It was, well, you know, if you're not going to be nice to our fans, your fans mm -hmm. and our listeners, then we're not going to play you. And if 92.7 no. had done it, it would have made Newsday. Um, yep. Yep. 88.7 did it and it made the Memorial Hall um, bulletin board. Yep. Um, by the way, that memo still exists in the RHU archives. Um much to my chagrin, um, <laughs> there was, I don't know how many years back now, but there was something on display in Dempster Hall of like relics from RHU through the years. And I think it was Tony Sibilla who took a photograph of it and sent it to me and said, That's awesome. you made the exhibit. And <laughs> <laughs> All I want to do is just get that piece of paper back. But you know what? Y'all can have it. I have a photo of it somewhere. And I know it was coming from a good place deep in my, you know, naive little heart um, all those years ago. Amen. I, I support you. I'm on your side. <laughs> um, no, so that's a story that you've you've told many times and and I'm sure with more detail and, and more invective, but we're being nice here, I think. Yeah, and yeah. is there a story that you rarely tell or have you forgotten about or came back recently to memory? I have one more thing to add to that former story before we oh, get no. off that entirely. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm sorry. And I just, I just thought of it. Um, karma is really amazing because I have been with my guy here mm -hmm. um, almost 18 years as of this recording. And his favorite artist on God's green earth is Mr. Smith. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, I mean, I mean, you know. You, you can't escape it. Which I is mean, hilarious. That's, that's that's something that would have wound up in, in that's worthy of a lyric of his. Yeah, I think indeed. You know, um, indeed. so let's let's move past him. I, and I, 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 can, I can hear that. I can hear the voice in my head. It's it's that's hilarious. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's great. That and I've great. told him that story several times. Now. I bet. I bet. Um, and he doesn't believe it. Um, <laughs> But as for a story that I rarely tell, honestly, I don't remember doing very much that was newsworthy apart from that. So you might know better than I. Well, um, it, it's not necessarily a deep, dark secret. It's more sort of like, oh, I forgot about this one, or I looked at this, or I thought about that. That just something doesn't come up very much if, if there's something you wouldn't mind sharing. Nah, it, it was just a, it's just an overall feeling hmm. that I have of being there and the memories of being there and being, you know, being in four track and recording people's, um, you know, what were those called? You know, when we did like the, the audition audio, tapes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, doing the sports stuff and, and all that time in the music office. 
um, just general feelings rather than specific and, and all the fun in the main office. Yeah. So much of it had nothing to do with radio, but just being around all of these incredibly sharp and creative and funny people. Hmm. Um, that's, that's what I take away from my time at RHU more than almost anything else. Hmm. And and speaking of those those times, and it could be something on air or something from from the office. Is there a funny story or a funny event that every time you think about it, it it, it makes you laugh or smile? Oh, so many, hmm. so many. Um, one of them actually, one of them actually became, I think, a topic of one of your shows from the past couple of months. Um, the little web vignette series called two guys talking. Yes. Um, that Charlie Cusimano and Brian Burton did. Mm -hmm. It was, it was Beavis and Butthead before Beavis and Butthead. Mm -hmm. And it was hilarious. It was so subversive and it didn't run for a long time. What it may have been what one semester, maybe they did seven or eight, um, little two minute editions of it. But, it never failed to make you like fall down laugh. Yeah. Um, and I just loved that I was in an environment where you could do something so stupid and silly and fun like that. And it would become the hit of the station. Um, I also remember an airwave session, not done by me. Hmm. Um, it was, it was a Friday night. It was Andrew Schmertz and Dan Kennedy doing Airwave together. And neither one of them had any use for any of the music. God right. bless them. Right. And it showed. So they just decided to have so much fun with it. And um, I actually have tape of that somewhere. Oh. How I came to acquire that. I couldn't tell you, but that was some funny radio. I bet that was some funny, crazy radio. Yeah, I know. I know Andrew has, has said many times he has is no knowledge of of music and music radio, and and, Ugh, and you know, it wasn't showed. it just wasn't his <laughs> to be charitable about, it, to be kind about it. It showed it was terrible. It, sh <laughs> it showed his his anytime he was on the air, it consisted of. Let me play the four or five crossover songs I know and something by the alarm. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> That's funny. But it worked. It worked. Yeah. He he can sell anything, you know, um, and he did, and he made it work. Oh, that's funny. Um, we we uh, kind of talked about this a little bit last time and, and a little earlier. So during your senior year, you're program director, and then you uh, switched to chief announcer. And one of the questions I generally ask is, you know, was there over time where you wanted to step back or change things? And we talked about this a little bit last time, but, um, yeah. you know, if you don't mind talking about that, what, uh, you know, because program director was something you're working towards and you have this vision for the station and then you kind of change jobs at the end of your senior year. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? No, not at all. I, um, first and foremost, I wanted to really enjoy my last few months at college yeah. before I had to go out into the real world. And 
being the program director was a bit more time consuming and a bit more stressful than I wanted to, than I wanted to spend my last few months at Hofstra. Hmm. So that was, that was my main motivation from, uh, for stepping back from an executive position, but I still wanted to be involved. Um, there was an opening for chief announcer and I still wanted to, I still wanted to contribute and, you know, helping train the next group of, um, of announcers, I thought would be a really fun way to do it and also play to my strengths. Hmm. So that was my primary motivation. Um, you know, I can also say that being program director became less fun for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wanted there to be more of an emphasis, more attention and resources allocated to things that the students wanted to do mm-hmm. than, um, than I felt was allowed. And, um, and I saw that that wasn't going to change in the time I was there. And I said, let me just, let me take on a different role and not have to have that worry on my plate. Yeah. Still contribute and and just have fun for a few months before I have to graduate. And I did. And I was, I never regretted the decision. Good for you. Yeah, it's, it's a hard thing. And I've talked to a, a lot of people, you know, being a manager at that age and being a college student and being among your friends, it's a hard thing to manage. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a goal and it's exciting, but it's, it's also hard work. And, uh, and good on you for, for being able to see that and, and make a decision that was good for you. Do you remember talking to Jeff Krause about that or, or, or did you get any advice from him? I did. And, um, I did speak to him about it in very general terms and he agreed that, um, that I could still be an integral part of the station and make a great contribution without having to occupy that corner desk. Mm -hmm. And if I felt that I would be a better all around person for giving it up, then that was definitely what he wanted me to do. And he helped me recognize also that, yeah, you know, fun time was just about over in terms (laughs) of being at school and, if there was a time to kind of switch gears and fall back a little bit, this was it, you know, and he encouraged me to, to do what I thought would, would make me happy and fulfilled. Hmm. Um, He was really good at that for so many of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was training us to be broadcasters and to be professional on the air, but he was also always, you know, looking out for, for the greater person, you know, for the, the, the bigger picture and whether that was career advice or, or uh, whatever it was, he was able yeah. to perceive that and do that in his own way. So yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I want to go back to, to music questions for a second. Uh, and, and, and this doesn't necessarily have to be a song, but 
is there a song, is there an album, is there a show or something that in your mind defines your time period at the radio station? Probably the two I keep coming back to when I tell stories about the music office. Um, Head Like a Hole from Nine Inch Nails and Smells Like Teen Spirit from Nirvana. Um, They were both huge songs. They both came out while I was there. And they were... They were songs that everybody kind of rallied around. Um, And when I think of that era, when I think of songs that we played a whole lot of, those are the two that most often come to mind. Yeah, those those are pretty good choices. Smells Like Teen Spirit is is definitely my my choice. I mean, it did, you know. Change, change my life and I don't want to take up your time here but it was it was a big one Do it. it was a it was a bit yeah. it was a big time but um thank you for sharing that is there a thing that you miss most about WRHU I think that sense of creativity that sense of adventure um mm-hmm. really just being able to do almost whatever you wanted um with a frequency right outside market number one. Um, we were really, really lucky to be where we were for so many reasons. And, um, I kind of liked how we were all kind of forging our paths together, you know, even though they would diverge and even if they were different kind of paths, whether it was, you know, a sports thing or, the classics from Hofstra or Airwave or whatever, you know, we were all kind of in it together. Um, You don't, you're really, really lucky to get that in a work environment as an adult. So I think that's probably what I miss the most. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, if you could go back in time for 60 seconds and meet yourself at 18, what piece of advice would you give to yourself? I was thinking about this earlier and part of me wants to say, get an internship. Yeah. Um, only because I think it just gave the people who had internships at radio stations just an additional additional layer of networking, an additional layer of exposure to the business on so many different fronts. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably what I would tell myself. But at the same time, I don't know if I would trade the experiences that I did have you know, I don't know if I could have done an internship and has been program director, you know, and kept up with my, with my workload, yeah. you know, my, my course workload. So that's something I might have done differently, but I can't, I can't really call it a, a regret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that is part of it is, is now there are different opportunities and there's more things that are local. A lot of the internships at the time would have been 
in Manhattan or they would have yeah. been kind of a hike from where we were. Not, not, you know, insurmountable, but uh, it would take up a lot of time, but hmm, that's interesting. Another hypothetical here. I'll throw you another loop here. You get a call from John Mullen or someone at the station. We'd like you to come in and take up a couple of hours of air time. Well, question number one, are you willing to come in and do a shift? And second, what kind of show would you want to do? Dude, I could be there in an hour if the traffic was right. I'll go right now. At the Bell Parkway, it could take three hours. You don't know. <laughs> yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> don't make promises. As long as you're willing to wait for me, when I get there, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. I'm more than happy to do it. Yeah, I would do it in a second. And honestly, I would, I would do just about anything that, you know, that was supposed to be on at the time. Oh, we're running a rock show. I can do that. Um, whatever iteration of airwave it is, that's fine. I've made myself a promise years ago when I went into radio that I would be open to doing any format except for country music. And that still holds. Amen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Well, that leads me into my, into my next and, and last question. I mean, you obviously had a lot of great times and, and memories from WRHU, but what did you bring from your experience at Hofstra Radio into your professional and adult life? Wow. Um, The ability to think on my feet, the ability to um, to be flexible, to kind of change direction on a dime. Hmm. Um, the, The openness to all different kinds of radio formats. Um, and I had, and, and a standard to try to live up to because I had such an amazing experience at RHU. Hmm. You know, I knew, I knew the kind of boss I wanted to work for. I knew the kind of environment I wanted to be in and to whatever extent I could, I tried to make those as much of a goal as paycheck or location or format, certainly, since I wound up in a f- format that I never would have expected um, to be in when I was in college. Um, I think that's mostly what I took from from RHU, having had an exposure to jazz and new age and everything else. Hmm. Um, just the, the willingness to kind of be able to go there and learn how to program in those formats. Hmm. Yeah. You mentioned earlier going into, into, I guess it was a smooth jazz format. How did, how did that, how did that come about? Cause again, that wasn't yeah. your area, but you wound up doing that. I, yeah, I wound up doing it. The, after graduation, um, I went up to work at a station in Southern Vermont um, that was at the time that AAA type adult alternative format. Mm-hmm. Um, it became that while I was up there. But when I first started, it was beginning an evolution away from more of an instrumental base, but it was kind of an instrumental vocal blend that was sometimes called new age, sometimes called adult alternative. Hmm. It evolved and it was one of the early 
um, adopters of a format that came to be known as smooth jazz. So when I had done my first winter in Vermont and couldn't stand the thought of a second, um, (laughs) I began to look for jobs in slightly warmer climates. And one of my record contacts told me about a, um, a production team in Princeton, New Jersey, who was looking for someone. And that's how I came to join Broadcast Architecture in 1993, who was, um, had really just begun their consultant wing of working with stations that used to be categorized as new adult contemporary and then became smooth jazz. I was very lucky to be in on the ground floor of that um, and working with stations primarily in the U.S., markets of all sizes, and then eventually um, around the world. Um, so, yeah, I kind of, that was, I had a, uh, I had a record company person uh, kind of steer me in that direction. And that's where, that's where I spent pretty much the rest of my radio career. Hmm. And so much of what you just said in that in that little summary are the things that I heard throughout that that you've got a standard, you've got you've got uh, expectations of how you want things, you've got organization, you've got um, the way that you format, all these things that you did at the station factor into that, and that's uh, such an amazing journey. That's so cool. Thank you. Thank you, um, Renee. This I I I'm over the moon here. I really am. This is so much fun. Um, I, I know I've said this before and I'm, I'm going to gush again and you can't stop me, um, <laughs> without your friendship and your mentorship, I don't spend much time at WRHU. This interview, this conversation, this podcast series isn't happening. My career in radio, my career in education, a lot of it comes back to the faith that you and Andrew and other people had in me back in the day. And I'm, I'm so grateful and I love these stories and I may even, I may even go find Mr. Smith's uh, records in my catalog and, and go put them away somewhere, you know, that I can't find them because, you know, on, on your behalf, I'm still, I'm, I'm angry again. And I may just take said CDs and go put them, you know, in the recycling bin. All I remember was how happy and relieved I was that we didn't bring him on that night because this way we had no association with it whatsoever. Right. I mean, that's, that's, just that's so pleased that, that, that is the cherry on top, but my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So what a, what a, what a night, what a disaster, but, um, a story you will tell forever. I am, I am sure. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. And thank you for all of those nice words. And I, I really, I'm, I'm tickled to have been part of, you know, and honored to have been part of your positive experiences of, um, of RHU as you were such a very big part of mine. Thank you. Thank you. This was so much fun. And, uh, I know we got to find an excuse to get together and talk music and, and tell some more stories. Anytime. Just badger me for 18 months and then I'm there. (laughs) You know how it goes. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll put it, I'll put it on my, on my desk calendar for next year and we'll start working on that. (laughs) This was awesome. Thank you so, so much. Thanks, Brian.